Hey everyone, in this episode of History Unloaded with Danny and Ashley, we have a special guest who has returned. He's been on before. He likes us enough to come back. Yes, we did not embarrass ourselves. And this is just... That might not be true. (laughs) I mean, I think the entire pre-conversation to this podcast was rather embarrassing. But his name is Jonathan Ferguson. He is the Keeper of Arms and Artillery at the Royal Armouries in Leeds. And did I get that right? Just firearms, but otherwise, yes. Oh, sorry. I promoted you. I know a bit about other arms, too. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) I promoted you to artillery, so now you have to learn about it. Oh, no, no, I do the artillery. Oh, I said arms arms and artillery. Oh, okay. Firearms and artillery, uh, not arms and artillery. Oh, okay. So it's firearms and artillery. Which is fine. I'm I'm happy to be promoted. Yeah. (laughs) And actually, my my, um, counterpart who does armor and edged weapons is away on paternity leave. So I guess I'm, like, standing in, hey, what the hell? Arms and artillery. Acting arms and artillery. Sorry. (laughs) You just don't hear paternity leave in the U.S. very often. You also don't don't hear of maternity leave. uh, You don't hear about a lot of keepers of (laughs) artillery in the U.S. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to be fair, I think I'm the only one in in the U.K. as well. It's still the best title of all the museums I know. You know what? I'm not taking that title. I'm just going to call myself that. Go for it. It's going to be, I'm changing my title in my consulting business from president to keeper of knowledge. Keeper of knowledge. <laughs> Keeper of the knowledge. All right. So for today's episode, we're going to continue the conversation on new gun collectors, but we're going to shift it to what should new gun collectors collect? And Danny and I have a theory that new gun collectors aren't going to be interested as much in the standard Colts, Winchesters, Remingtons. Like they might still be into it, but like we think that with the internet and Gun Jesus and like the the book he just had on pistols and warlords, like there's this like new environment where we're looking into weird, obscure stuff. And so let's give any new gun owners that are listening to this some weird, obscure stuff they can collect. Yeah, let's let's go for it. All right, who wants to start? Well, I guess we should start off by asking. So there's a big push right now, and I, I guess really in the U.S. there's a big group of new gun owners that we've been talking about in this series, and I think that's going to change the collecting world. But there was also a changing sort of scope of collecting. I think even before 2020, so the internet and certain YouTube celebrities to be named later, sort of started, they they were having an impact on the collecting world. I think certain media was having an impact. Do you see that same sort of trend where you're at in the UK? Or is it is it influenced at all by what's going on in US collecting? Is it its own niche? How do you see it? In, it well, first thing to say is it's obviously a much smaller collecting community with rather smaller smaller horizons in terms of what they can <laughs> what they can collect um and then so within the stuff that does overlap more with what i suspect most listeners will be thinking of like historic handguns and self-loading rifles and things the sort of thing that that the people that have not been yet named might have on their channels um that well firstly self-loading rifles just not a thing unless they're in two two and yep. there are no, uh, or 22, sorry. I was going to say, um, it's a 22 are... <laughs> for American Eye. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, got a, I got a YouTube comment about that once, so I'm, I'm self-conscious about it now. But we do, <laughs> yeah, weirdly, we say we say 2-2. Um, well, it's probably because, I mean, like, 5.56. Five, yeah. Nine yeah. millimeter, you guys are just keeping it keeping it consistent. So, somewhat. So I... <laughs> oh, yeah, because you, yeah, because never mind, it's like the 280, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I mean, either side is, yeah. is consistent. No, no, we're not. That is. Yeah. But yeah, so um that that stuff they they just can't get. Historic handguns are restricted to essentially rich people or relatively well-off people who and those with an interest and who know that they exist. So there is this I don't know if I've spoken to to you guys about it, but what they call section 7 which refers to the paragraph of the Firearms Act. Our Firearms Act was 1968. And Section 7 was an amendment put in in 97 after the massacre at Dunblane, where they essentially banned handguns. But they, unlike rifles, they let you have historic handguns in two categories that I won't go into because we haven't got all day. Um, 
one with that's like restricted by cartridge type and you can keep at home nice of them i know and um the other that is freer on caliber like you can have a webley well you can have 455 webley at home as well uh like a nine mil um luger or something but you have to keep it at a designated site and there's like a dozen sites around the country so not anywhere near home and you go to the firing point and they bring it to you in a box and you shoot it and then you put it back. I know. Um, so which, which means that the, so the market is therefore very small as well. Um, in fact, most of our historic firearms of that nature, so not antique, but historic firearms have all gone to other countries um, and are still going to other countries. So, so the, the opportunities are, are slim. So what you're saying is our new gun owners in the United States take notes because, <laughs> <laughs> because this could be you someday. Or maybe they're just grateful it that could. they have such a bigger pool of things from which to pull. Do you... <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a follow-up. It's, it's early still. Do you, do you see... What was like... a? Tr I guess the question is, do you, do you see a shift then? Since the collecting scope is limited, have you seen a shift in collecting trends or is it still relatively the same group? Like I'm thinking, you know, when Battlefield 1 came out, like everybody here all of a sudden wanted a SMLE. And I think that's achievable there. Did you see any kind of similarity? It is. I suppose the, the, the first thing I should have said is that I, I'm not really embedded in the collecting world in the way that I'd like to be. Mm. Um, too busy, not, a, not enough money to acquire and travel around. Um, but the, the collectors that I do know, um, and, and actually we, I, I guess the worlds are a bit more separate anyway, because mm. the people we buy from tend to be in different circles, if that, make, if that makes sense. So, so there's like a, the shooting, shooting slash collecting world who are, who are shooting mainly modern firearms or reproduction black powder and some some original black powder then there's the sort of the privileged if you like who, who have some ability to collect the sort of thing that you have to some extent then there's the auction world and so we we don't have so much overlap with the everyday collectors because they don't really have anything that we're interested in <laughs> well, <and> I, <laughs> other than in the antique world i should yeah. stress that obviously we we deal with everything as you do um everything from the very first handgun hand cannon to the very latest thing. So we're thinking mainly here about like center fire firearms, but there is this whole collecting world that is there to be influenced by things like YouTube, but there's not really anyone on, you on YouTube doing for antique firearms, what C and Arsenal are doing for CNR. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Danny, I feel like this is, maybe this is our, our niche. Maybe it is, um, but I think there's a similar issue because so using the SML, SMLE as an example for you, if you were to become a collector of such things, like what would you do? Because you go to work and you have infinitely better examples than you could hope to collect in the world. I run into why like, I don't collect. And so. And theoretically, we're not supposed to. Right. Theoretically. Oh, I'm back. Theoretically, curators aren't really <laughs> supposed to, but I, virtually every one that I know does. I collect naked lady gun posters, so I was very, very good about the curator code of ethics. Staying away from what the museum collects. Maybe the museum, <laughs> the museum didn't want naked lady posters. I, I showed them. Well, now them. now that you've broken the seal and you're collecting them, clearly they have collector intrinsic value, and therefore museums should be collecting naked oh, lady yeah, gun posters. Like I have the influence. <laughs> like now everyone's going to want yeah. these posters. Yeah. What's, that's that's kind of how it works, isn't it? It's, it's not all true. influence from museums and YouTubers outwards. It, it works both ways. Right. Um, to, sorry, to answer your question, because I've been skirting around it, I am sh I am certain that younger shooters are buying SMLEs because they've played Battlefield 1 or uh, are buying deactivated broom handles because they've seen one on an Ian video or something. I'm, sh I'm certain there's, a, there's an influence there. The, the only evidence that I have for that would be uh, the Historical Breech Loading Small Arms Association here in the UK, who, by their own admission, are old. 
and they don't have like um i was speaking to one of them the other day and he said like i'm one of the youngest and i'm and i'm old he said yeah <laughs> he's he's not that old he's like he's middle-aged like me uh but th- so there aren't many many of them there to be influenced by video games pop culture or even the likes of gun jesus um having said that i know that some of those older members do watch that stuff i guess we're, we're slightly starved for for certain types of firearm as we've as we've mentioned and so those of us that can't regularly get access to it we watch the videos you know so the comments from the brits and the americans on on things like youtube videos are quite funny because they vary you know, the, the brits are just happy to be there yeah. <laughs> <Amazing>. <laughs> <laughs> wish i could shoot that <laughs> well you know the one thing that's kind of interesting uh from like a american perspective and an english perspective uh when i was in england you know i was i went into some like private homes of people i didn't know in a foreign country um and I, like when i saw their collections i was like oh my god and like i feel like they weren't like like they were, they were still really good, but like they're like mind blowing to an American, you know, like the Ferguson. Uh, like I just literally like came off an elevator into someone's like private uh, flat. Is that what you call it? Um, and there was just like a Ferguson, and then he had like firearms from like the royal, you know, the history of the royal family and like all this stuff. And I was just like, <laughs> like I was just like, oh my god. But like to him, he was just like, yeah, you know, just got these things. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's yeah we because... again we we really have to make clear that just just because the the 20th century stuff is really lacking the pre 20th century stuff is seriously impressive like oh pe- God, people yeah. with the means because you know the values are insane that's that's the irony is that the the um affordable era of collecting although it's getting less so is the 20th century we can't have most of that stuff <laughs> um so the people with the money and, and and to be fair there's a there's a divergence of interest as well like if you're into antique firearms you're almost certainly not into 20th century firearms or even late 19th century firearms but like you say there are some seriously impressive collections in europe including the uk and i'm sure that and we know there are in the states too um but they're more equal in, yeah. in the early stuff do you see like you, you mentioned it there the affordability of pre-20th century and I think that's a big driver for why it's changing in the U.S. is the Colts and Winchesters of the world would have a lot of interest here because there's still a strong interest in the American West and things like Red Dead keep that alive. But Walking I think... Walking Dead, too, if we're talking yeah, about deads. There's, there, there's all sorts of... Yeah, if we're talking about deads. <laughs> uh, but there's all sorts of things that sort of keep that interest going, and there's sort of a natural interest in the U.S. for it. Um but I think a lot of younger collectors or newer collectors go into a show, see a collectible Winchester or Colt, look at the price tag, and then decide that's not for me. I'm going to go something else. And do you, is it that – do you see any driver of that? Do you think it's an interest level that people just aren't as interested in, say, 19th or 18th century stuff? Or it's I would be interested if it was an affordable type of collecting? Maybe a bit of both, but – my impression is that it's just lack of awareness, lack of familiarity. Uh, you know, we, both sides of the, of the Atlantic, but especially in the UK, we, we're exposed to this stuff through the popular culture stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just think of how many movies or TV shows are set in that antique era. Mm-hmm. Not that many, you know, like Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, it's the classics like Last of the Mohicans, but you, you can count them on almost on the, well, maybe on the fingers of two hands. Um, and has it, that been it's, it's, a lot lately? Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I wonder if it will change. Like, will, will we see more? But, but I think it's strongly influenced. Even the guys that don't admit to it, mm. who, who are you know, I'm I'm a collector of, of antique firearms. I I don't know nothing of popular culture. We don't even have a television. Uh, <laughs> no, you grew up watching like cowboy movies. Like right. the the, fir- the first wave of modern firearms collectors, wherever they are, got into it through watching cowboy films nearly all of them Uh, i suspect 
So before we switch over to like some of the weird shit that people, you know, could collect um, in America, maybe not in England, but I do have a question in terms of like, because I know that some of the people that I met over in Europe are desperate to get their collections to America, ultimately, because they're worried about uh, the specific thing I'm thinking of is that the Italian government, you know, is the laws there are really, really strict in terms of wealth and ownership. And so there's a huge collection in Italy that the person wants it to be in the U.S. so, so much because, like, theoretically, the value of that collection, the Italian government, like, could come in and be like, mm, this is ours now. We're going to turn it around and sell it. Uh, yeah, there's, like, a nice. whole thing where, like, I think if you've got, like, over $100,000 in the bank account that they can, like, literally, like, above that number, like, they can just come and take them take the money. I mean, it's really crazy. Um, so like, I know he's desperately trying to get stuff into the United States and that's really hard in Italy because they're like, no, like you can't, nope, nope, we're leaving it here. So with some of these collectors that have large collection or not large collections, but really valuable, historically significant collections in the UK, are you guys able to, is there a, well, are you able, is there a market of people trying to push stuff into the United States to kind of you know, basically save it before it needs to be saved so that it's not ultimately destroyed? Is that a thing? I'm I'm not too aware of that, except that uh, I was discussing, well, there's a particular collection. I won't, I won't mention whose it was. And, and it was one step removed because it went to, it went elsewhere in, in Europe first. But due, due to trouble with licensing um, authorities, um, a very good collection, excuse me, <clears throat> a very good collection of late 19th, early 20th century firearms um, ended up, a lot ended up going to the States and so, there's so much good stuff that's just gone now. And okay, it didn't all come from the UK by any means, but some of it did. It certainly came, came from Europe. That's now all gone to the States and for legal and other reasons, it will probably never come back. And it's gone piecemeal as well. You know, it's not so you've got the strength, the breadth, the depth of a collection, a themed collection of stuff. Great. There's, there are books and things have come out of it. But now that collection is spread to the four winds, except it's not the four winds. It's the four corners of the states. So my, it's kind of <clears throat> the other way around for me is lamenting the loss of things. I, I mentioned it earlier, it, uh, just in passing. Um, as to how do, is it happening and is it easy to do, we are part of the advi expert advisor sort of group for the government for export of important sort of cultural artifacts. Uh, obviously, we just do the arms and armor. So if something over a certain value comes up, uh, fulfilling certain criteria, and I've had two in this this month, actually, we are asked under these criteria, should this be blocked? Um, from export and it's very rare that something is blocked so I imagine the answer is yes it is relatively straightforward <laughs> <laughs> a lot of stuff is going over to America I don't know why it's going I suspect it's just because the person selling it wants to make money and the buyer happened to be in the states it's not the same thing as what you're talking about about trying to get their collection relocated somewhere with a better jurisdiction or where the tax situation is better <laughs> or I know I, go on. I, I was just gonna say I know of at least one US collection. It was a really extensive World War One and World War Two machine gun collection. And I wanna get the entire story I'm gonna get parts of the story wrong, so I'll try and keep it succinct. But at some point, I believe in the seventies, the collector decided that he did not like where US regulations around firearms were headed. So he did what Ashley was talking about and tried to save what he thought was saving the collection and send it up to, he had residents in Canada as well. So he, oh. he took it up to Canada, was able to get the, the, all the paperwork in order to own his collection up there, perfectly legal at the time. Of course, since then, Canada drastically changed its laws. And now I think the family wants to re-import it into the U.S. because at one time they were all registered transferable NFA items in the U.S. under U.S. law. Um, but because they were exported, 
they're no longer registered items, so they would have to be registered. <laughs> oh, no. So essentially, they lost their registration status, so they can't come back into the country. Well, and there's uh, a there's a weird grandfather policy that ultimately like expires. Because when I was up in Canada for a lecture, we went into this amazing basement. <laughs> story of my life uh, and saw this like full on, you know, machine gun collection that was legal. But when he, it, one, he can't take it anywhere. And two, when he dies, that's it. Like he can't go to the family, nothing. It's just that's it. And it, they're going to get destroyed. Um, and it's just unfortunate. So that is a, you know, understandable in the 1970s in American culture. But like that is super unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, they they jumped the wrong way there didn't they yeah they they um, bet on the wrong horse yeah, yeah i nearly used that expression <laughs> um, yeah, so, it's an interesting question you, sorry oh no no go ahead go ahead i, I was, was just gonna, gonna say shift I'm, our I'm, focus. I'm surprised that i haven't heard of people re- i've heard of businesses relocating to the states just because that's where the market is um and i've heard of individual i know some individuals who went i've had enough of this i'm going to go and live in Europe, where it's more permissive. Um, not so many who've moved to Northern Ireland so that they can have handguns. I don't think I know anyone that's done that, but someone must have, because that is that is. I, see, we talk about the UK, but <laughs> the, it's a complicated setup. And in Northern Ireland, it is still legal to own handguns. Anyway, and I have not heard of anybody relocating to the states for that purpose. I suppose it's a a bigger leap for people to take with families and and things to relocate just because they're into firearms i don't know i'm sure they're doing it i've thought about it at times but <laughs> only idly because as you say i have access to such a great collection you know so what would be the point before ashley changes the <laughs> changes the direction do back to what it's supposed, supposed to be, to be. I'm, I'm really i you mentioned northern ireland has different rules isn't there one of the islands it has it's like a totally different and very permissive set of rules around firearms yeah that, that would be jersey okay. um i don't know the situation on <laughs> jersey we have new jersey and it's not so yeah new that's Jersey's ironic the, the standout in the u.s for different reasons. yeah well york and new york are quite different as well yeah <laughs> <laughs> um having been to both yeah, Jersey is probably, from what I gather, is the better situation, but it's quite hard to get residency there. Um, it's only small. Uh, it, it's ma- mainly quite well-off people, I gather. Um, I think the Northern Ireland situation, as far as I know, is because of the history of trouble. The troubles, in fact, is the main reason that the ban didn't affect. Because that ha- that um, particular incident happened right at the end of that period of strife in Ireland. And I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the reason that, because normally what happens is one of the nations changes a law and then all of the others follow it. And it's typically England. And then Scotland would follow, Northern Ireland would follow. Um, Scotland followed, Northern, well, didn't have to follow it. it. The incident happened there. So they would have done it first if England hadn't. And then Northern Ireland just went, no, we're keeping them. And in 97 sort of time, there were still quite a few people with concealed carry permits effectively um, because of the risk. Yeah. Now I gather that they are very hard to get now, but you can still in theory get them. And it's the, the slightly more permissive legal situation has led to sports shooting for handguns still going on and so collecting as well. Uh, but Jersey is, I, I gather, if you could just pick one place in the British Isles, uh, to to be for firearms, it's probably Jersey. Well, and you know, don't forget that England's also home to like the most prized high end, you know, sporting arms companies, you know, in the world. That's pretty true. Yeah, so yeah. it's that's one of those backward situations where Americans are like, oh, Hollands and Hollands, you know. Um, so there's still that, which is nice, and and is that hunting sporting culture still? large in england yeah this is i find this aspect particularly fascinating from a historical point of view um do you think back to that that conference we were both at back in 2016 um talking about history and the second amendment and all that yeah that that really got me thinking and i and i haven't stopped about 
um, the history of the two countries and why we are the way we are, and that it's really very consistent with our history, that you know, we have always been restrictive based on social class and wealth. You know, landowner, wealthy landowners can, could basically have what they wanted for, for a period of time if you didn't have a pot to, to whatever, you know, piss in, uh, then you would have no right to a firearm at all. And the situation has obviously changed since then, but it's resulted in a kind of bizarre situation where we have a, a shall issue situation for shotguns of up to, to two plus one capacity. So obviously trying to limit limit harm as much as possible, but to basically allow people who want to shoot clays or pigeons to carry on shooting clays or pigeons. Used to be a rich man's game, today not so much. So we have inherited one qualified right <laughs> around firearms, <laughs> but it's based on our history of giving the guns to the rich people. <laughs> really you know, bizarre. 50 years ago, 100 years ago, you wouldn't have owned a shotgun to go sport shooting with unless you were well you know talk about the rise of the middle class in the 19th century that's probably when that happened prior to that it was farmers you know who, who are relatively wealthy landowners let's be honest usually or you know bigger landowners um, the elite so the answer is yes uh, and actually weirdly enough within the restrictions that we have sport shooting is growing i gather you know, more and more people are getting into the firearms that they can have, whether that's a 2.2 AR-15 or a Holland & Holland shotgun or an Accuracy International precision rifle. You know, deer stalking is, is quite popular and not just with the elite. You know, it's somewhat more accessible to other people as well. So, uh, but that, that was sort of the downfall of the historic firearms collecting scene and sport shooters of self-loading rifles and things like that because whenever the restrictions are threatened people and you've seen this in your own country people will go oh that's not my sport i'm going to look after my area of firearms and we'll be all right jack yeah and so one by one they fall well, and that's interesting because the, the the sport shooting world could be increasing um it, well actually it's you know it's it's getting kind of sad because the United States, because of the perception of firearms and the fact that they won't promote, like you used to be able to watch the, you know, all of the three gun competitions on ESPN and now they, no one will, will showcase the the sport of shooting really anymore. Really? And actually true story. Um, Cause my husband's a pro shooter. They called my husband and were like, you should have been at the qualification, the qualifiers for the Olympics because no one showed up and it was like horrible. Um, and from what I've heard is that, uh, like he would have, he, he's not in a, like he doesn't do those disciplines, um, and like he probably would have made the team. And that's not shotguns because shotguns are still you know really popular. Um, yeah. But it's kind of sad because from what I understand, at the world shoots, I mean Americans are still winning a lot of the titles, but it because it's so much more respected in other countries as a real sport, um, Amer and because Americans are shunning it essentially in the mainstream culture, uh, we're going to be surpassed by the other countries in terms of actual target shooting ability. So that's kind of sad. Um, it's really sad, sad actually. Weird. <laughs> yeah, it's, really weird. It's super weird. <laughs> But yeah, it's and Russia, of course, is, you know, really taking, you know, they're doing really well. Uh, but yeah, it's really sad because we won't acknowledge the shooting sports anymore. You know, it's ultimately dying off. And so it's well, kind of an interesting cultural change. Uh, yeah, yeah. Really, yeah, it's really well, popular at a like low level. Those sports are present, but at like the high level, like the media recognition isn't. isn't oh, there. yeah. And that way, there, and there's no reason, justification, because you can't, unless you're Jerry Mikulik, you really can't make a career off of being a, a professional shooter. And so it's very, very difficult to, you know, do that. And so it's just really unfortunate. Um, but yeah, maybe, Danny, you could have gone to the Olympic tryouts or whatever they're called. I don't know. I can shoot shotgun slowly for Ooh. three guns. <laughs> I can shoot an M1 okay, but not by Olympic standards. Yeah, well, and I, mean, I don't think they use 30 at six anymore. And the shotgun world is still thriving because Kim Rohde actually didn't. I don't know if it's public, but Kim Rohde didn't make the team this year. Uh, Kim Rohde's are like yeah, wonderful, you know, 
shotgunner who's, I can't remember, she's got like more titles and Olympic medals and like everybody. Um, and she didn't even make the team this year. So it, the shotgun world is still, you know, thriving, even though it doesn't get the media attention. Um, but yeah, so now that was a massive tangent. So let's shift focus <laughs> to, to, you know, so it's kind of interesting because of the, and we, I, we're going to talk about this a little bit more in a, you know, future episode with a book that came out um, on John Moses Browning. But, you know, there's this like almost... There's this passion for people now in the country to collect things that were not considered collectible before because they weren't the big, the big brands, big box stores. Um, and so I think it's, you know, important for us to talk kind of about, even though you guys may not be able to get it, you know that there's a lot of these cool things out there. And there's a lot of debunking that's going on within the gun world in that book that we're going to talk about later really debunks the, the a lot of the history of John Moses Browning. And so it feels like people are now passionately going towards the how can we prove gun history wrong? And so I know that there was something that you and Danny have been talking about. So I want you guys to have that conversation about pre-Colt revolvers, because in America, people <laughs> uh, no, I want to hear. Um, but, you know, this is one thing that Danny and I've actually talked about significantly, which is that like everybody thinks that like Americans invented like all of these technologies and like that's not true <laughs> uh, many technologies you know were developed over in Europe over in England and you know we've just rewritten a narrative that we invented everything um, bold actions you know pretty much everything <laughs> Absolutely everything. Uh, I think we figured out that the, maybe the Winchester, like the lever action. Well, we have be. credit to some things, but not till later. Early stuff. Yeah. Early stuff we just got really good at making. Exactly. But so, somebody else invented it. Talk about that because I don't actually – I think Danny told me about it, but I wasn't listening. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, we're – the whole theme – the original theme of the episode is stuff that is – or the way the collecting world is changing. And I think – Jonathan, you and I have seen this, and we've we've talked about it outside of the podcast a little bit. Um, and I don't want to put you in any uncomfortable situation because I know there are, you know, anytime in the collecting world that something like this comes up, there's always we all three could think of probably separate people we know that have been burned in some way, or this is always, this would be a sensitive issue to. Um, but it seems to me that for for probably several decades. Um, maybe not quite, but I would say several decades that once a, once something was sort of put out there as this is how the history was for a firearm. Let's we'll use Colt as an example. If this is if this is the history of Colt, that's the general storyline. It's been put out there in a book form of some kind, good, bad, and different. We don't really care. It's in a book, and we'll take that, and that will be the basis for a lot of collecting, without a lot of critical re-examination um and i guess what we're seeing is people are much people are starting to look with a much more critical eye than even just a few years ago and i was wondering do you see that similar trend or do you think that we're just off our rockers <laughs> no i think that, that's inevitable with um global exchange of information and you know the ability to instantly fact check uh, ideally you know you know what you're talking about um, and you don't just look up a web page that happens to prove that fact wrong and side with that arbitrarily but i think i think people are better at critical thinking and they have the means to do it so i'm sure it's affecting all aspects of collecting and all aspects of life no no one and i think i think to some extent it undermines um which is both good and bad, it undermines authority. You know, the, the, the old logical uh, fallacy of appeal to authority. I've always been very conscious of that, but being in a position where I'm meant to be an authority on something, you know, what I say is supposed to go. And I've always thought, well, why? You know, I don't, haven't necessarily studied that in, in depth. Um, and I see a lot of people who are in a position like, like, like I am, who will uh, carry on that tradition of oh well I I've I'm supposed to know this so I'll say it and what I say will go and they were happy to ride that and you know not be and be beyond reproach um, so I'm very glad uh, actually as, as much as it's sometimes like you know you get challenged on something and you, you the back little voice at the back of your head goes <laughs> don't you know who I am and you go no hang on 
<laughs> doesn't matter who you are <laughs> beyond a certain level you know it, the, the title says you've spent years of your life studying this subject so what you say if we have to go on opinion carries more weight but you should still be able to point to your sources if that's a, you know if it's if it's a conversation in, in, down the pub or something that's not relevant um if, if it's something where there's an argument going on then yeah you you whether it's someone who has done nothing but watch Forgotten Weapons for five years versus me and they quote their source and they're right of course they're right you know so so I think that's I think that is happening and I think it should be happening and on a lesser level we've been sort of my generation um I'll try and embrace you into that if I can um have been doing it with the print literature so, you know, we, we, we know that there are a few sources on a certain subjects. That doesn't mean that they're the be all and end all. And especially if you find yourself revisiting a subject. So, and I'm not saying my Bullpup's book is like, is by any means a paragon or perfect or anything, but several, two chapters of that revisited what Tom Dougalby did with his EM2 book, his main EM2 book. And you start out, reading this and you know, almost like worshipping this tome uh, the book consult the book of armaments you know this thing is has got all the facts uh, it must be because it's the only one and the more you the more you do original research the more you speak to other people who maybe don't have the, the information out there but they know it and they can show you the sources you go no that was just a start um and a lot of it's wrong <laughs> Uh, and you think if I've discovered that, then it's probably even more wrong than I think. <laughs> <laughs> so it should be a process, shouldn't it? Mm -hmm. um, it should be someone put someone collects or works in a museum, puts out a publication. That's the starting point. And then there should be more that follow. But what tends to happen is we get little branches along the road and they stop there. So the, the fun thing about the Internet stuff, although it tends to be a bit unfocused and there's not so much getting put in in print or you know somewhere where it'll stay forever is that it doesn't just stop at that branch you get iterations you get challenged back and forth you get something closer to the academic process um so it's kind of exciting but a bit frightening do you think it <laughs> to, to... oh i was just gonna say do you think this ultimately leads to broadening what is collectible then because it gets you out of that that iter iterative yep. process that you spoke of that i can't pronounce um gets you away from the traditions of I think it arms does. collecting. I think it is. Yeah, absolutely. Because instead of just having, you, you said it yourself earlier, it, in the old days, like if I, I want to seriously collect a certain type of thing, I'll find the book or I'll go maybe these days or like in the last 20 years, you go to a forum or something and find out what the book is. And then everyone in that forum has that book. <laughs> and that's the guide. And you almost use it like a, like a tree spotting guide. <laughs> <laughs> or or, or anything, anything else of that nature and you go right i've got one of each of those now where do i go but now it's like a constant sort of debate back and forth between the collectors the collectors and the youtubers the, the collectors the youtubers and the museum curators and i think i mean it's not kind of developed as yet but we could end up with a much healthier community around the world if we if we all try a bit harder rather than just operating in silos where the curators do their thing with their collection the collectors slavishly collect what the book says to collect and don't deviate from any of the knowledge that's in it and then the and the video gamers play their games and don't ever look at guns well we've seen we're seeing crossover all the time right and they to me and we talked about this a little bit yesterday is that i think that that is a or I'll start this over. It's interesting to me how they started a very different place. So when I got into firearms, there was sort of paths to go look at old guns, buy old guns, whatever. And like there was a, a sort of known path for me to steer into firearms collecting because I collected a little bit before I started this job. Grad school put an end to that. Um, <laughs> and now I work with guns that I couldn't afford to collect. So, um, <clears throat> but when people play Battlefield or Red Dead or whatever, there's I, I always go to those two, but there's tons of other games that feature these things. And then they they go out into the world. It's much more, at least to me, it seems like it's much more organic and not necessarily following the traditional paths into the 
arms and armor world. And they, and they tend to not be for better and good. I think focused, you know, we talk about collection. What is a collection? You know, it's a thematic grouping of things. And it's just like, I played it in the video game. That is my theme. And that's what I'm going with. And that, that sort of explodes the system of collecting that had been established till that point. Yeah. Well, and one thing that's important to note for new gun owners that might be considering to go into the collecting world is that, and I think we've said this before, which is to collect what you're interested in, not necessarily what's, you know, hot now, because if you look at it, I mean, there was a female collector and I can't remember what she collected, but like she wrote a blog about it and now, you know, she collected things that weren't considered collectible. And now her, because of her collection, you know, they're going for more and more money. And so if you collect your passion, then you'll be happier um, with what you've got because most gun collectors, like they're not getting rich off of it. You know, they're, they're definitely, you know, just using the money they may use, they, they may sell a gun and then use that money to buy another gun. And so what is collect? now may not be collectible later and you can see that with like world war ii collectors i mean and you know a lot of them were shunned for a while especially with like the american society of arms collectors there's more and more mid-20th century collectors whereas like before like that wasn't considered cool and then like my husband for example collects a lot of post-world war ii things uh both selective fire and also semi-automatic technology and it's growing in value you know it's a lot of you know, AR platforms, um, different types of black guns that right now are kind of taboo, but like, especially if there's any laws, you know, banning them, quote unquote, because the, the bans don't actually ban anything, but regulating them heavier and heavier, those things that are grandfathered um, are going to be a lot more valuable if as long as they can be sold and not like Canada, where they just kind of stay with the collection until the collector passes away. But, you know, it's it's important for people to realize that if you like something, you could, and you said this earlier with me and Naked Lady posters, that like you could influence that market down the road, um, which is cool. I mean, it's a great opportunity to be influential uh, in a world where you like increasingly feel like you're inconsequential um because <laughs> yep i did it that was actually like that was good uh, i'm gonna <laughs> pat myself on the back for that um so i think we've been talking for a while so i think in like if we could all um kind of go around the room and say one thing or a group of things that are not considered collectible now that are really badass that we'd like to see collectible down the road um and just kind of like you know lorsons <laughs> yeah. do you think that we could sorry do you think we could ever make those cheap ass like ring of fire guns worth a lot of money someday I believe we're approaching conspiracy now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, okay, so the perfect example of this is the gyrojet, you know, which was like a massive, yep. you know, failed military experiment. And then like literally during the lifetime of the gyrojet, they shifted focus and they were like, oh, these are like target guns and they're super cool. And they sold them in like collector's boxes. And they, because they didn't make a lot of them, they're now rare and they go for a lot of money. I mean, in like, and that was during the lifetime of the people creating the guns. They were like, oh shit, we got to shift we gotta shift gears to make this some weird niche product for like Americans to be like, look at this cool thing. And so like people are like all about the gyro jet, even though historically speaking, you know, not as significant. So that's a great example of some weird ass thing that was not really that successful that but because of not being you know, not producing a lot becomes rare and now people want it. So yeah. is that your example for around the room? N well, no, because it's already collectible. Oh, okay. <laughs> People like really, really want them and they drive the prices up. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think, do we? I'm going to come up with one that's emerged within the last few years okay. that I think is going to become more collectible. So to use your reference of like things that had been shunned by collectors, like I'd still, you'd probably still get some weird looks if you walked into ASAC with a grouping of late 80s, early 90s action movie guns. And until <laughs> until Die Hard comes out, an HK MP5 clone, or a legit one if you could get that, and a Beretta M9 together, most people probably would say is not a collection. Those two guns together. They don't there's nothing that joins them together through theme. Maybe if you were only ever going to buy two nine millimeter firearms, that would be the best leg. But then Die Hard comes out and now that is those two guns substantiate the beginnings of a diehard collection. Well, and actually, I mean that that sounds a little ridiculous. I love that. <laughs> it, it sounds a little ridiculous, but like 
the Colt collectors, the Winchester collectors, that all came about because of post-World War II fascination with the Western again. So, you know, well, like a, a old school collector might go, you know, no, no, you know, that market was totally, you know, the Winchesters were totally inspired because of, you know, the original Winchester brand. Like, no, a lot of that stuff, the, the, the Colt type single collections that came out of the market in that time period, the Rugers, the Great Westerns, and then Colt, you know, getting into the game two years after everybody else, um, you know, that inspired those people. And now there's like a historic justification for why everybody's super into it. Um, you know, so that's not ridiculous because, you know, even those are even though those are more modern popular culture, I would say 40, 50 years from now, that's you're right. That's collectible because I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's not it's it's now not 40, 50 years. Like if you pay attention to social media, like younger like collectors are going out and getting those guns because they saw that movie and like there are people that have they i i don't know that everybody that's done it would call it a collection of sorts they probably buy them to shoot them and enjoy them but they've gone out there they post about it on reddit or wherever instagram who knows what and they say this these are my diehard guns they might not call it a collection but it's like i have these guns because of this movie and that's that's happening that's true so I, I don't even yeah, think I wouldn't even put a 40 or 50 year qualifier on it. Well, I was thinking more in the 40 or 50 year of like collectors. Recognize, oh, like, yeah, like, that's you know, the collector community, like actually being like, oh, yeah, OK. You know, whereas like, yeah, just a group of people on Reddit saying it's cool versus like the, you know, established collector. Before they get membership into ASAC. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's what I meant by, got it, by got it. Got it. Do you have one, Jonathan? Oh. I'm struggling slightly, except that I can't. I keep thinking about like ephemera. Um, ephemera stuff. works. Well, yeah, like um, and and so that that would be what's what might be acceptable. Well, I don't know. It could apply to to a private collector. So I don't know, like toy, toy representations of of firearms, for example. I think if you if you walked into a an HBSA meeting. Where, where, and I should say, first of all, I think the, the collecting culture here for the sort of era we're talking about, like, you know, 1870s to present, um, is actually very permissive. You know, I think I, I, we host those the, the meetings for the northern branch of that association and they bring all sorts of stuff. You know, their remit is breech loading. So some of it's like cap and ball breech loading, literally. Um, a lot of it is cartridge, like modern cartridge stuff. And they're all very permissive and they all enjoy, they go, oh, well, yeah, that's cool. It's not for me, but it's, you know, so that, so you don't get that kind of a, what the, who is this maniac? <laughs> Whereas if, if I were to walk in with like my, my Nerf gun broom handle. Can we uh, see that? That I got on eBay. Uh, <laughs> they would, they would, even knowing who I am, they would look at me like I'd lost my mind. Is that, is um, that close by and accessible? <laughs> yeah. I, I need to see this. Well, this isn't fair to our... This is not fair to the listeners at all, but this is for me. That's amazing. That is actually really cool. That is... That's way better than my Flintlock Nerf gun. No, I, I like your, your Flintlock. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Write, writing um, the, Os the Osprey that I wrote on these things, um, and I even toyed with the idea of going historic handgun and getting myself one of my own. I thought, well, why bother? Um, and people started sending me... Um, like representations of, of of the guns, so I've got like a Lego, a knockoff Chinese Lego one I haven't built yet. There's one you press out of wood and slot together. There's I I, I did buy an airsoft Chanel foyer, um, <laughs> which for which for some I keep waving this around and I put it down. <laughs> I know it's like <laughs> a little um, like if people could see this, they'd be like, "Oh, could you?" <laughs> I, I can I can hear people despairing of me. Uh, and they haven't even heard about it yet. Uh, and um, oh, this is my favorite. <laughs> is that that is a plush Winnie the Pooh broom handle? That is correct. Made made for me by my good friend Khan Rooney, who I, you have met. <laughs> I feel like I'm a little sad that he hasn't said yeah. us any. We're gonna have to like get on him. I was I was I was deeply touched when that appeared. Anyway, it's an excellent. Um, so I ended up with like a very small collection of toy broom handle pistols, and so I bought myself that uh, Nerf one and the airsoft one. And I I think hey, well, 
you know, this is how collecting used to happen, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Before, you know, things that aren't regulated where you mm-hmm. don't have to plan ahead for licensing and storage and everything. It's just on that level, it's what take, you know, you collect what you like, which is, you say, Ashley, I think that's, that's probably the big shift is rather than going, you might start out with like a bayonet because it's affordable and it's something you saw at an antiques fair or something, but you very soon, if you, if you want to, if you want to identify as a collector, you will engage with the literature and with a group and you will fit, fit their norms and you will start collecting, you know, in a theme. And I think increasingly, certainly in, in your uh, part of the world, you can just do what you like. So you, you can have one from this, one from that. Um, I love the idea of a diehard or an action movie theme collection. I don't think we had, I'd love to see a, an application for a license with that on it. That would be just, <laughs> but I don't, I don't think we, I can't think of a way to, to make that work. I just love to see the inquiry on the police officer's desk. <laughs> Could it be done as a, a solely 22 version of the collection? A 22. Well, here's, the, here's the thing. And something I haven't made clear is, and partly why I, I'm struggling to give you um, concrete answers for a lot of this is that the collecting culture is, my impression at least, here, somewhat divorced from the shooting culture. Mm. So you don't, you either collect, in which case you probably collect stuff that isn't licensed, so antiques, Mm -hmm. including obsolete calibers, and then if you're suitably clued up and well off, Section 7 handguns, and deactivated firearms, there are lots of collections of deactivated firearms, or you're a shooter. And you might build a collection through shooting, but the reason for having it on your license is not collecting. It's because you are competitively shooting a lever action or a bolt action or a 22. You know, you know what I mean? So you can't, as a shooter, you don't really become a collector. Interesting. And as a collector, there's no reason why you'd be a shooter because most of what you've got won't shoot. So there, there is a the distinction there. But so- arguably... I think we've established that you have the world's best collection of toy, toy representations. Toy broom handle representations. It's going to be. Yeah, it's going to be. I'm going to double down now and uh, and get some more. Yeah, corner that market. <laughs> Maybe an elastic band. Uh, oh shooting yeah, one that's, there's got that's got to be out there. Um, but the yeah. reason I thought of thought of that is because it it's something that plays in the back of my mind because of the sort of discussions that we have at, at the symposium and informally and the different um, restrictions and, and societal debates that we have in both our countries about gun control and what, what guns and, and their relationship to violence is, I am always thinking we should be collecting toys, um, media, stuff that, that represents gun culture that's a reflection of gun culture not the real guns we have those so so we should be like um i I always i'll always remember going into some weird shop like shopping mall um eraser shop i think it's gone now i forget where it was you know one of these weird themed shops where you go in and all they sell is erasers and so they're all different shapes and colors and stuff and there was one that was an almost perfect replica of a beretta 92 and I, and I was a little bit kind of bored out on a shopping trip like and I, oh it's a gun you know picture like, oh, that's actually quite a good they probably copied that off an airsoft gun or something how interesting i think i might buy well no i didn't what actually happened was a mother practically slapped it out of her little boy's hand and went you're not having that and i just stared at her over this display of, of we call them rubbers here <laughs> this display of rubbers like what are you it's this big and made of rubber what's <laughs> what's your problem and that got me thinking again about we, i i sh- shouldn't just buy one for myself i should buy one and accession it because in 50 years they might not be around true <laughs> yeah that's i mean the ephemera of the culture is a good point and we it, it's become somewhat more accessible to museums but we're not there yet i would say because we're too busy with the with the gun still um but yeah Same it's a here. really it's a really good point with the exception of and this might be the gateway to that kind of thing as you know we have been collecting film props and you've you've displayed them certainly i think they were on loan though mm-hmm. um 
and that so that's been the the progression for most museums will sort of borrow modern pop culture items because they know it'll get people in mm -hmm. but some of us are you know increasingly thinking well actually that's a legitimate part of this subject and is something that people collect you know i guarantee you there is a themed collection out there of sadly deactivated movie handguns or action movie firearms um, i mean i know of one it was a collection of james bond film screen used production used firearms um so we we took the next step and decided we needed a, a core collection of stuff that so we didn't have to borrow you know it, we would always have our own representative collection of you know like a a sword that retracts when you stab someone um some, something like big ticket and famous like a pulse rifle from aliens um, and then we did decide we need to spend some of this public money on a bit of archival material so um somebody donated a press kit from aliens that had some pictures of people holding the different guns so we added that to the archive collection and we also acquired several movie posters where people are holding firearms as well um, and we don't intend to stop you know money's going to be tight for the next few years and a lot of it will have to go on antique arms and armor some of it will go on modern firearms because i'm here and the pattern room collection is here damn it <laughs> <laughs> and uh some of it we hope will continue to go on film and tv props but it should, it should all be one glorious whole of the theme of firearms so that's what I would say is people <laughs> should be looking to collect uh, toys, posters, video games, uh, video game controllers, um, you, know, you name it. Now, the problem there is where the hell do you stop? Yeah, that, that quickly runs it. If your theme is firearms, and we, I mean, you've run into this problem, we've run into this problem. And for our listeners who may be new to collecting, you will run into this problem. If your theme is firearms. I kind of think back to like the papers I had to write in high school and I would submit a topic and the, my teacher would be like, that's too broad, like narrowed down. I'm like, what? I can't, I can't write, you know, whatever the number of pages was. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, you, you run into something that's too broad, but I think your point is valid in that, you know, if you are listening to this, thinking about getting into collecting or are collecting and starting one or wherever you're at, it is, it doesn't have to be that, you know, traditional Colt Winchester Jimmy Stewart portrayal. It can be the Bruce Willis portrayal. It can be aliens. It could be um, ephemera of some kind. So it doesn't have to be those things, and which has been the theme of this episode. But um, yeah, all very good points. Does that lead us to vampires? Or <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, we didn't even get to vampires. We didn't even get to vampires. So I, I feel like maybe another time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like you should just go back and listen to our episode on vampire killing kids. But I mean, that goes to the whole, um, I mean, collecting of movie stuff that may or may not be real, uh, you know, that are modified firearms. But then also, you know, the collecting of things that were a collection uh, back in the 19th century, like people wanted certain things. And so they were made as, you know, essentially maybe commemoratives, um, commemorating nothing that happened. But, uh, you know, so you get those weird niche things, those weird things, because, you know, how popular is vampire lore now? I mean, it has been, but, you know, the resurgence of popularity of vampire lore and the supernatural, um, the paranormal. And so, you know, I think at some point, did you just shut me off? Oh, um, you know, I think at some point it is super. Now I just don't even know what I was going to say because that threw me so <laughs> it threw me so bad. Um, but you know, there's there's been a resurgence in this, and I'm sure you know in the late 19th century, especially as you come into the 20th century with the popularity of spiritualism. Um, you know, there's this desire to collect something, and they may or may not know that that was real or not. You know, at the time, but then of course there's a there's a there's a fraud market or you know a, a market of things that are intentional. You know, they, like the people who made them knew that they were fake, and now a hundred years years from now we don't but uh, we didn't even talk about that but that would be I, I was gonna say glocks for mine but now i'll just say fraud market because i think that's also really interesting um you know you could have bought some at 
Rock Island recently. Uh, <laughs> but the fraud market is really a fascinating thing because it could be anything that you're interested in, like vampire killing kits or, you know, old guns that are super rare that somebody, you know, purposefully forged. I think it'd be a cool collection. Um, and it might provide an opportunity for those things to be categorized as frauds or forges, forgeries. So then moving forward, you know, 100 years from now, it's like, oh, that was Ashley Lubinsky's forgery collection that was sold at this auction. And so it becomes a part of that historical narrative, which also helps identify things that aren't you know, weren't real, um, based maybe in history, based maybe not. But um, and that shows the culture of the time as well. So I think that we worked it in. Um, yay. Uh, and then we've been talking for a really long time. So we don't want it's late. It's getting late in where you're from. Yeah. I never know if I'm <laughs> saying England or the UK. Like I get so confused. Um <laughs> I get so confused. Uh, I actually got yelled at for using the wrong version of that in reference to Joan of Arc. Uh, so uh, in Master of Arms, I was talking about certain things historically, and I used, I used British or something, and someone got really mad at me. Uh, so I just avoid it altogether. But thank you, Jonathan. Thank you so much for coming on. And I think this is really interesting because we were just going to talk about guns, but I think you know it, it was valuable to talk about the collecting market in England and where it can and cannot go. And then you know, in contrast, what's going on in America and what's available for all new gun owners and maybe deter them from moving to England someday. <laughs> There's lots of good things here, too. It's, it's just true. not the place to be if you like um, modern well guns. Arms, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything other than shotguns. All right. Well, I, that was really rude. That was like, I was like, yeah, that was, I, that was a pretty big dig. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. We 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 live to uh, self deprecate. So uh, it's fine. I just like course. that was a total like bless your heart. Like <laughs> pause. We got to end this like horrible transition. So thank you so much. Uh, next week or not next week? Are, are we releasing these all at once? <laughs> we're doing weekly, yes. Oh, okay, weekly, cool. So next week we're going to continue that conversation about new gun owners, and I don't remember what the episode's about. So uh, tune in next we'll, week we'll to find out. Check our notes before we record. <laughs> Talk to y'all later. See ya. Next week on History Unloaded, we will be joined by Forgotten Weapons' Ian McCullum to talk about how he made uninteresting guns interesting again. Check it out on all your favorite podcast platforms.